0: Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. So good morning,
1: everyone, and welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach political science and history, and I'm co-chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. The theme of our webinars, uh, Saturday webinars this, uh, this year is Moments in Crisis, and if you're joining us for the first time, what we try to do is pull together some thoughtful, interesting scholars uh, on these historical events that we're discussing uh, and have a um, have a thoughtful conversation uh, for an hour or so we encourage all of you joining us to submit questions in the chat box um, and we'll try to get to as many of those questions as possible in the next week you'll receive a, an email with a link by which you can request a certificate of participation as well as a link to the archive archive audio and video from today's discussion. As always, we've recommended some documents from uh, our extensive collection of original documents available at tah.org. And uh, we're discussing today the crisis of nullification, the nullification crisis. And I'm happy to introduce our our, uh, our guests today, our guest scholars, Eric Sands of Barry College, and Jason Stevens uh, of Ashland University. So good morning to you both. I'm very happy you could join us. Uh, I'll just mention in passing, very quickly, that both of these, uh, both of these uh, scholars teach regularly in our in our master's program as well. Um, so again, thanks and good morning. So, fun theme, interesting theme. Uh, it's how, it's, how do we start such a discussion? I'll start with the question that always comes up in my mind when I think about this. Uh, nullification crisis, and either of you can jump in and 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 either address it or talk about anything you want to talk about. Uh, but you've got, of course, uh, the nullification crisis centered around South Carolina in 1832, and we know, of course, that in 1860, South Carolina leads the charge for secession. And in many ways, a lot of this is uh, is um, foreshadowed in the. Um, uh, Webster-Hayne debates, I believe, in 1830 or 31. And of course, Senator Hayne is from South Carolina. So my question is always, wh- wh- why South Carolina? Uh, what's the deal? What's South Carolina's deal, as the kids <clears throat> used to say in the 1980s? What, what, what is it about South Carolina that always <laughs> seems to put them at the center of these contra- uh, constitutional controversies involving nullification and secession? Either of you like to enlighten us on that point?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think I I also like to um, in my American history classes uh, ask my students, what's the deal with South Carolina? It always it always seems to be South Carolina, whether or not you're talking about um, the uh, the endeavor to have the unanimous declaration of the uh, the 13 states. Uh, South Carolina, even in 1775, 1776, is dragging its heels a bit on that issue. Um, you mentioned the, the nullification crisis in the late 1820s uh, or early 1830s, uh, followed by um, South Carolina being the first state uh, to quote-unquote leave the Union, so to speak, uh, the first state to, to, uh, to declare that they have seceded from the Union following Lincoln's election uh, in 1860. Um, why South Carolina? I mean, it's a good question and I don't have a perfect answer for it. Um, if I were to try to try to say something um, <clears throat> something about it, I think it has um, a lot to do with um, the southern character of the uh, of the people, and that is to say, uh, plantation class, perhaps more of a an aristocratic spirit uh, in terms of their uh, mores and their uh, their manners. Um, but then of course the question is well why not Georgia or why not North Carolina why uh, why here in in South Carolina? Um, in South Carolina you see in addition to that <clears throat> almost aristocratic spirit um, one of of independence and that's a strange amalgamation right one of sort of aristocracy and uh, fair, strict, uh, independence on the, the part of, uh, on the part of their people going back to, to the days when they were, uh, when they were still a colony. I don't, I don't have a good answer for this. I'm just, you know, talking out loud, thinking out loud, trying to think this problem through Chris, which you bring up, which is, is such a good one. I want to allow Eric to, to jump in here and give us his thoughts though
0: yeah well i i think the most obvious answer is that south carolina is the root of all evil in american history um i i i I, I think i think that really just explains everything um and and that's that's where i usually go with my students um (laughs) teaching them about south carolina but um you know i i guess one way i'd answer this is is that south carolina wasn't completely alone um when it came to nullification Uh, There were nullifiers in Virginia, there were nullifiers in Alabama, Uh, there were nullifiers in Georgia. Um, There were a number of of prominent politicians, senators, congressmen who agreed with the arguments that the South Carolinians were making and were trying to get the same thing accomplished in their states. What's different about South, South Carolina was really the amount of unity that you saw in the state um the the upland planters that tended to have the smaller plantations with fewer slaves and the lowland planters that tended to have the very large plantations with lots and lots of slaves um there was a lot of intermixing between these two classes and it 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 bred a kind of of unity of purpose uh between them that you didn't see in a lot of the other states uh so where one group kind of got themselves inflamed or passionate about a particular issue, uh, it tended to get the other groups uh, whipped up in the same kind of frenzy. And um, the, that that kind of, of unity across class lines wasn't as common in a lot of the other southern states. Um, you know, I also wouldn't discount you know the influence of South Carolina's leading politicians. I mean, you you can't really talk about the nullification crisis without talking about John Calhoun, um, and John Calhoun was a South Carolinian, um, so you know, not a not a surprise that he's going to have mm-hmm. uh, a really you know in, impactful um, influence on what's going on with South Carolina's events, uh, and and what's taking place in the state. That's
2: really really good. And as you were as you were talking there, Eric, it, um, a quote from Lincoln during the Civil War came to mind, where he's talking about the uh, secessionists in the various Southern states. Uh, and Lincoln, he makes the case that in all of the so-called seceded states, the majority, Lincoln always believed, were not in favor of secession, right. except perhaps in South Carolina. Except in South Carolina. <laughs> except in South Carolina, right? Yeah. Now
1: that's a that's a great point.
2: I hadn't thought of the uh, sort of the composition
1: of the planter classes in, in South Carolina and how they would have formed a, a clear majority uh, on these things. So, so that, those are two two great answers to that question. Uh, by the way, um, so what is it? So, Eric, you mentioned that when the planter classes would get in sort of their passions would get inflamed. Over an issue uh, that they, they came to very quickly, came together very quickly and united. What sorts of things did they get inflamed over that led to the nullification crisis?
0: Well, uh, the, the the two big issues were certainly the tariff um, and the perception that the tariff was, if not creating, at least significantly exacerbating the economic depression that was affecting South Carolina through most of the 1820s, um, and you know, Southern, uh, South Carolina planters were really taking it on the chin, um, you know, the mortgages were being called in, um, you know, houses being repossessed, uh, the, there's, you know, very, very significant loss of, of income and property uh, that are taking place. And uh, you know, more and more, the tariff gets to be blamed uh, for all of this taking place. But, you know, in, in the background, I I think there's also the concern about slavery. And there's a number of events taking place um, that have South Carolinians worried about slave uprisings. Um, And uh, so the Denmark Vesey conspiracy uh, was South Carolina's version of Nat Turner. Uh, Only nothing really came of it, um, except that Vesey put together this extensive conspiracy to overthrow um the city of charleston uh and you know it it, it didn't go off Yeah, they they caught the conspirators you yeah, know they were hung um but it put the fear of god into south carolinians um you have to remember a lot of the the uh, the the tidewater planters couldn't stay on their plantations year-round so they had to trust uh, and and it was because of malaria uh, the mosquitoes were so terrible um, in those tidewater regions that you you didn't stay around uh, all, all year or you risked you know getting malaria yourself. Um, so they had to trust their plantations to overseers, many of whom were very unqualified uh, and not very good at their jobs. Um, and there was the constant and then perpetual concern that not being around, Um, and not actually physically being in place was gonna empower the slaves uh, to rebel and fight back. And we are at this time, just at the very, very beginning of the abolitionist movement. And so we're starting to get some of those abolitionist petitions making their way into the South. And this also greatly angers South Carolinians um, and upsets them and uh, you know, puts them on guard against uh, what they see as northern influence in in a southern institution. Well, that's a
1: great that's a great
0: point. Remind, it it makes me think back to what
1: Jason started with uh, with the initial question about this combination or amalgamation of of um, how did you put it, Jason? Uh, independence and aristocracy and aristocratic aristocracy, just, spirit. So, so if this is going if the, if um, if you have those kinds of concerns with regard to um, the to, to, to plantations and, and, um, and the need to manage those plantations effectively to avoid these kinds of potential slave uprisings, uh, that might be one reason why they found that independence so important, right? That is, they, they needed to maintain uh, a, a large degree of self-control over how they ran things and managed things. Uh, economically, but even on an individual yeah. level on the various plantations, independence means the right to, or the power to, to to do what, you know, to do, to, to govern oneself and to run things efficiently in a certain way. And any, any perceived attempt to, to take sovereignty, that's the big term that comes up, right? And with Calhoun and others to take that kind of sovereignty or sort of self-control, self-government away from, uh, from the planters in the, in, in the South. Uh, could potentially be dangerous, as you're pointing out, Eric, because it undermines their ability to maintain that kind of tight control over the plantations. Uh, again, to avoid these slave uprisings, and then, of course, from an economic standpoint, in uh, since you raised it, and Billy raises this in his uh, in one of the questions he submitted about the the, uh, the the idea that the South needed to evolve economically as well as socially and politically, but it, the tariffs were were clearly perceived as a sectional. Um, as, a, as, a, as a very sectional measure, right? At least that's my sense of this, that the mm-hmm. that South Carolina, not just South Carolina, but a lot of folks in the South perceive the tariffs as one that would be uh, quite uh, beneficial to, to certain Northern states, but, but potentially catastrophic to Southern states in terms of their ability to maintain a, uh, an economy and run an economy well. And that of course sort of trickles down to their ability to maintain and manage their plantations is that a fair assessment of the tariffs? That is the idea that the tariffs were were were, were sectional in, in design or intended to benefit in one part of the.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, South Carolina was clearly of the opinion that they were going to be those who would suffer under the uh, the new
0: imposed tariffs much more than other states. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's important to point out, you know, this is, you know, 1828. You know, that that time period is, is when the tariff really starts to become a sectional issue. Um, you know, John Calhoun supported the tariff, you know, in the 18 teens. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, well, he, he, he also was,
2: supported the union, right? He, also he, he,
0: was, he was a he was a nationalist. Yeah, right. um, but he was a qualified nationalist. Um, and, and qualified in the sense that you know he supported internal improvements, but only internal improvements that benefited the country as a whole. So he didn't put, he didn't support particular projects in in particular places. So you know a bridge in Maryland that doesn't serve any other purpose uh, to to people anywhere else he'd he, he'd oppose. But you know projects that would have uh, you know broad ranging effects and 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 so he'd he'd support it. He also supported tariffs and uh, voted for a number of tariff increases. Um, but his qualification on it was that he only supported supported tariffs uh, that were genuine protectionist measures that were not revenue generating measures. Right. and so if if we were talking about using a tariff to to raise revenue, he he didn't support it. Uh, if we're talking about tariffs to genuinely protect fledgling industry uh, that that needs protection um, in order to grow, uh, he he tended to be in support of it. Well, that's what begins to change when we start getting into you know the late 1820s. Is you know Calhoun and others that had previously been strongly nationalist in their orientation, you know, begin this this view that the tariff has become a sectional weapon. Um, and is being used against the South and in particular, you know, states like South Carolina for vindictive reasons, uh, for, uh, you know, as as punishment for slavery, um, that they're you know, trying to use the tariff as a way of bankrupting Southern planters um, so that they have to get rid of their slaves. Um, you know, this is the time that the American Colonization Society is asking for federal funding um so that uh they they can get federal support uh for recolonization efforts and they they start to see a connection between all of these things
1: that's that's very interesting by the way i think eric you partly or started to address uh or in part address the question from clay uh clay asked if tariffs increased prices of imported goods why weren't all states upset by the tariff of 1832 seems logical that all states would be equally impacted I think what you were suggesting is that, that Calhoun and others came to believe that it did not impact all the states equally. That again, it was something about the southern economies that led the tariffs of 1828 and 1832 to impact them unequally. Is that a fair assessment?
0: Yeah, that's that's a fair assessment. And you know, they they of course chose what goods the the tariffs would be w- would impact and what what they wouldn't and. Um, You know, cotton was one of the things that, you know, was was impacted by this. They developed what was known as the the 40 bale theory, um, which became just phenomenal propaganda in the South. Um, And the 40 bale theory said that for every 100 bales of cotton that Southerners raised, the government was essentially seizing 40 bales and taking it away from them. Um, and that was what they were losing in profit, um, as, as, as a result of it. Now, the economics of that are a lot more complicated <laughs> than just, you know, that the government taking 40 bales. but you can see why this would have had widespread appeal, um, as, as, a, as a propaganda tool and, sure. you know, South Carolinians, you know, bought right into this and, you know, uh, for them, that was, that was the way they thought about the tariff mm. was you know, uh, essentially, the government's taking 40% of everything we raise, and how how are we supposed to make a living that way?
1: Wow, yeah. Uh, That's a great point. And it also seems to me that um, that the other effect of the tariff is that well, I mean, if you think about the economies of the northern states, and the southern states, the southern states are producing the raw materials that are being used by manufacturers in the northern states, at least this is this is kind of the narrative that's that's woven in a lot of scholarship and i'm, I'm asking both of you whether you think this is accurate or not uh and, and the idea the idea the effect of the tariff is that uh, you would think that northern manufacturers would be buying more of southern goods but it but but my understanding is that the effect was that northern manufacturers started dic- or Found themselves in a position to dictate the price of southern goods, and that there, there was some concern that the that the northern uh, manufacturers would get the southern raw materials at a at a, at a much cheaper price. Is, am I misunderstanding this? You talked about the complications of the economics, Eric, and I'll admit I'm not the best person when it comes to understanding economics. But what I guess I'm wondering is it is it is it. Is the unequal effect of the tariff a result of the fact that southern states are producing raw materials like cotton and other things, or is that a is that not? Am I chasing a rabbit?
2: i'll I'll let Eric correct me if I'm wrong with this, but my my uh, understanding was that uh, a, a lot of the uh, southern discomfort with the uh, the tariff uh, had to do. Uh, with the price that they'd be able to get for the cotton on the foreign market. That as our tariffs go up on foreign imported goods, the primary beneficiary of Southern cotton is the European states, who are then going to uh, slap a reciprocal tariff on uh, on the cotton that's exported out of the American South and into and into Europe, that they therefore were expected to receive less of a profit uh, from their from their goods on the foreign market. Is that is that right? That makes that makes a lot of sense, Jason. Thanks. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's always been my understanding is that like South Carolina planters sold only a fraction of their staples in the domestic market. And so ah, they, okay. they really couldn't benefit that much from protection. And and their view was in fact, tariffs would inevitably destroy foreign demand for things like rice and cotton. And then we do have to remember rice was the other big, uh, big, big component that's being exported from South Carolina. Um, So it's not just cotton that's coming out. Um, So as as Jason said, foreign governments might impose high tariffs on American exports as retaliation. Um, Foreigners might also buy their goods in uh, foreign lands if they could not sell their goods in American markets. I, I know there was concern that, you know, England would uh, basically get Brazil and Egypt to produce more cotton um, and would just take their cotton from those places as opposed to taking it from the South. Mm. Um, so at, at best, you know, the Europeans would buy these Southern staples at lower prices. At worst, cotton and rice would find no foreign markets at all. And mm. um, that was that was certainly a legitimate concern um, South Carolinians had.
1: That makes perfect sense.
0: The way you both just described it, that that, that actually clarifies
1: it nicely for me. So um, w- one of you mentioned earlier, um, maybe Eric, the uh, the other reason that that Calhoun was opposed to the, these particular tariffs, he came to see them as revenue. The intent was to raise revenue. And I and I remember um, we didn't we didn't ask people to read this for background reading, but in the Webster-Hayne debates. That, that that whole debate, if I remember correctly, begins over a question of whether the federal government can somehow use the value of land uh, uh, in, in federal territories to, to raise an independent source of reven, revenue for the federal government. And Haynes starts arguing against that, and one thing leads to another. Webster, it seems to me, sort of uh, either intentionally or inadvertently insults the South, <laughs> that mm. insults the honor of the South in his description of of slave economies, but but what, what is it about, maybe you can speak to Calhoun's own objection to this, what is it, why is he opposed to a, a, a tariff or any kind of federal measure that would raise revenue? Is, is it simply a constitutional question for him or does he see something else going on here?
2: I don't think it's so much a constitutional question as it is founded in um, Calhoun's understanding of, of the Union and the relationship among the states, whether you're talking about the tariff or uh, the public land bills. Um, for Calhoun, he could be persuaded to, to join these efforts, as he had earlier in the 19th century, to join these efforts if he could uh, be persuaded to believe that the entire nation, that all the states would equally benefit from such measures. But it, it comes down to where if the, the, the public land bills uh, benefit uh, northern industrial states over the the southern plantation class, uh, and uh, and and the tariff as well, if that's what it's doing. And in fact, that that is exactly what's going on here. That it's 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 the the northern states who are going to be, and the the northern industry that's going to be reaping the benefits of these measures to the detriment of the South. Um, Calhoun rebels against that notion. I mean, it's it's sort of the same idea that comes across in his one of his last speeches uh, in, uh, in the Senate uh, an, another piece we didn't assign for today but his speech on the Oregon bill right the, the territories are the, the property of all the states and to uh, to exclude slavery for them or to, to allow the northerners to get their way with with the with the territories uh, to the exclusion of the, the southern people. Uh, is a violation, a basic violation of, of Calhoun's understanding of of the Union as a Union of of equal sovereign states, and we can say more about what that means in the in the rest of our seminar today. But I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Oh, th- thanks, Jason.
1: Yeah. Um, I didn't know if you wanted to jump in on any of this, Eric, but I, I was gonna. You get a couple of good questions to come in, so it looks like uh, we're sort of shifting to some of the arguments uh, for or against nullification. Um, But before we get to say Calhoun, uh, Calhoun's arguments and the Fort Hill address and Jackson's response, um, how did it come about that uh, South Carolina issued the? um, They were they were the one who issued the explicit explicit ordinance. Of course, that was issued, I think, strictly on behalf of South Carolina, but I think it was, was it their state legislature? It was the state legislature of South Carolina that issued the ordinance, if I'm not mistaken, or was it a separate convention? I can't recall. Do either of you know?
0: I I think it was the legislature who did the state ordinance.
1: State legislature passed an ordinance. Okay. So they so they issued an ordinance, if I remember the ordinance correctly, and this is in 1832, I, I, uh, I think they just mentioned recent tariffs. I'm not sure if they mentioned specific tariffs or not. But uh, my understanding of South Carolina's argument in the ordinance is these um, these tariffs are uh, are unconstitutional. And uh, if I remember correctly, they think they do allude to the idea that they are they are uh, harmful to the interests of certain states, and that therefore they are to be considered null and void and if i remember correctly the south carolina goes on and makes the point that if if the federal government should try to enforce those tariffs uh, on the state of south carolina that there there'll be further consequences I, I don't have the document in front of me so i'm just sort of working from memory here but they 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 suggest that further steps will be taken to actively resist any attempt of the federal government to assert its authority to enforce these tariffs so um, so South Carolina issues the ter- the, the ordinance of, of nullification, and I believe John C. Calhoun's speech comes after this, if I'm not mistaken, right? I'm trying to get my history straight here. Uh, <laughs> mm. So South Carolina they issue of the ordinance of nullification. John, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, does, is this when John C. Calhoun resigns from the vice presidency? Is there yeah a, I think
2: that's right. Chris. out of things I think, right? I think that's,
1: that's right, right. yeah and, and Calhoun goes back to South Carolina and, and starts giving speeches in favor of nullification and I think the example we have um, have suggested that people read for today is the uh, the, the uh, Fort Hill address. so could, could either or, or both of you walk us through or tell us what what the central points of, of uh, Calhoun's argument are in defense of nullification I mean we're, he, he argues it's a constitutional right of the states. How does he how does he build up to and arrive at that conclusion?
2: yeah, i can I can take that. Um, actually, I think it would be helpful if maybe we um, spent a little time just with the document itself because Please, yeah. Um, in the second paragraph, um, Calhoun talks about the great and leading principle of this government and how Calhoun understands that great and leading principle, I think. Um, tells us a lot about the, the, uh, the position he takes in regards to the tariff and how he understands the issue of nullification. Um, so this is the second paragraph in the Fort Hill Address. The great and leading principle is that the general government emanated from the people of the several states forming distinct political communities and acting in their separate and sovereign capacity and not from all the people forming one aggregate community. That the Constitution of the United States is in fact a compact to which each state is a party and the character already described and that the several states or parties have a right to judge of its infractions. I'll just stop there because I think that goes back to the idea that you introduced us to at the beginning of the session, uh, Chris, about sovereignty. And uh, for, for Calhoun and the nullifiers and then later the secessionists. Um, The government of the United States and the constitution of that government were formed by he says distinct political communities acting in their separate and sovereign capacity. So the union is created by the states. The states are older than the union, the union, um, the states created the union, and the states gave the union, the national government that is, um, whatever powers it might possess under the constitution it wasn't the individuals it wasn't the people who formed the union it was the people living within the several states it's the people of the states who created their state governments and by virtue of those state governments formed the union or the national government as contracting parties in this compact that is the u.s constitution so the states are co-equal part- partners, co-sovereign partners in the creation of the, the national government. Uh, and this uh, understanding is is not without basis. For example, uh, if you go back to the Articles of Confederation, Article II, I think it is, of the Articles of Confederation states, each state retains its sovereignty, independence, and freedom. So Calhoun and Hain uh, and others always argued that the the states never gave up their, uh, never gave up their sovereignty, they have always been been sovereign. Um, And therefore, as sovereigns as creators of the national government, uh, they can unmake ordinances, statutes, or, uh, or provisions or laws of that national government that they believe harm their the rights of their people. And for Calhoun, um, that's what the nullifiers are doing. They are standing up to the abuses of the of the national government, who are seeking to impose um, their will on uh, on the people of the of the states. And for for Calhoun, I think that is that is that is central. That that central aspect of his political philosophy is how sort of every other idea emanates from that fact. How he understands the union. It is the creation of the states, not all the people forming one aggregate political community.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the articles because I was gonna say that sounds like the same basis that the Articles of Confederation were, were founded on, right? The idea that the states mm-hmm. are sovereign and independent, that they come together as parties and they contractually agree with each other to to uh, confederate, right? So it's almost as though Calhoun's using the language of confederation still. Yeah. Um, but does the article say they're confederating for certain purposes, right for the purposes of uh, sort of regulating um, intercourse, um, commerce uh, among the states, for the responding to foreign of, threats, yeah of, yeah of, of of security, right national security, uh, foreign uh, defense, mm-hmm. national defense and and for other perhaps beneficial things for the good of the whole union as you Mm -hmm. and eric were were saying
2: earlier Mm -hmm. yeah and you have a form of nullification i think that exists under the articles of confederation right where it takes all 13 states to amend the document If one state says no then the amendment doesn't pass congress could pass certain um revenue measures tax law can can raise armies but it's up to the individual states to to comply um, they have to as the states that is have to essentially give their their permission um, uh, in order to make any laws emanating from the national Congress under the Articles effective. Yeah. Um, but of course, the problem is we're no longer living under the Articles of Confederation. Um, that's one problem, at least for for Calhoun's argument, I think. Um, yeah, but, but
1: Calhoun seems the, to think we are. I mean, yeah,
2: he does, doesn't he?
1: That, unless mm-hmm. I'm misreading Calhoun, he seems to think that the the pr- the the principle is the same. That is, the nature of the compact is is essentially the same. Right. Well, I do I do think at, at some points Calhoun concedes, maybe not in the Fort Hill address, but uh, of course it's published posthumously, I believe, his Disquisition on Government, yeah, which comes out later. Calhoun does admit that the compact is slightly different because, in in one sense, the people are a party to the compact, but the states as states are also equal. Co-equal parties to the compact, they're co-equal with each other and to the people as a whole somehow, which means yeah. they still have a certain degree of sovereignty uh, and control, therefore, over acts of the federal government.
2: Yeah, and that and that is that that central feature of of Calhoun's thought is not only what gives us nullification but also secession, because for Calhoun it doesn't matter what you call it, um, right? States' rights, state sovereignty, nullification, secession. All of these um, are, are features of a union of sovereign states. So to, to keep reading from where I, um, in the same paragraph where I've been reading before, but towards the bottom, he says, this right of interposition, right? So the right of interposition, one state interposing itself between the people of that state and the national authority, nullification. This right of interposition, thus solemnly asserted by the state of Virginia B be it called what it may, state right, veto nullification, or by any other name, I conceive it to be the fundamental principle of our system, resting on facts historically as certain as our revolution itself, and deductions as simple and demonstrative as that of any political or moral truth whatever, and I firmly believe on its recognition depend the stability and safety of our political institutions." So. For Kahoot, it doesn't matter if you call it state's rights, veto, nullification, interposition, or even, we might add, secession. It still goes back to that same basic idea of a union of, of sovereign states. And the reason why he mentions Virginia here is he's going back to the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions of the the earlier Republican period to, to justify that understanding, to justify his stance.
1: Yeah, and by the way, it us James Madison, you know, all kinds of trouble by going back to the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions and and, and mm-hmm. holds those up and says, see, even James Madison and Thomas Jefferson were in favor mm-hmm. of nullification as a means of interposition, mm-hmm. right? And right, right. of course, James Madison disagrees that that was the intent. And if, if at some point, perhaps we could look at James Madison's argument in these things since he is still around for this. Yeah, and his letter to, uh, um, to Daniel Webster. Yeah. Uh, but. But just one quick thought, if you don't mind, Jason. Since mm-hmm. you, and you mentioned the Articles of Confederation earlier, and James Madison has come up, um, you're right. If uh, if you've read, I know you've read it. James Madison wrote um, the Vices of Our the Vices of the Political System of the United yeah. States mm-hmm. uh, going into the Constitutional Convention in 1787, mm-hmm. and uh, he he lists, uh, I believe, 12, 11 or 12 vices. Mm-hmm uh of of the articles of confederation essentially and Mm -hmm. one of them is that because the states did in fact the state legislatures did in fact ratify the articles it gave the states a a right both of nullification and secession as you were saying And james madison does explicitly make that point in that piece Mm -hmm. called devices
2: yeah, and he identifies that as one of the vices of the Articles of Confederation and why they need to be why they need to be changed, why they need to be replaced by the U.S. Constitution. One of the problems with the the government under the Articles is that it it, it, it it's a government of states and not of individuals. And Madison says that's a problem um, for reasons that he that that he gives in that in that uh, uh, in that document. But we see Calhoun here, you know, years later in 1831, saying, "No, nothing has essentially changed. It's still a union of states, not of individuals, and that's a very good thing. In fact, it's key to the preservation of our rights and liberties."
1: Yeah, and I just I, I mentioned the, uh, the, the the James Madison piece because Madison acknowledges that that on these questions of nullification, and of course we're bringing secession, I'm bringing secession into it, but specifically on the question of nullification the manner in which the compact is made and who the parties are to that compact does affect this question of whether a state has a right to nullify or not. Yeah. And so Calhoun seems to be at least, at least consistent on that when he begins his defense of the of a state's right to nullify by looking at the nature of the compact and who are the parties to the compact. Yeah. Er, is this, Eric, what do you think? Is this, are we reading Calhoun
0: correctly or? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think so. I mean, there were, there were different schools of nullifiers um, it, at this time. And uh, you know, one, one school were the, 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 the divided sovereignty folks um, and they sort of maintained that the, the state government as a co-department um, in one united governmental system could check federal encroachments and preserve its own share of sovereignty So it it almost envisioned the state as being a co department of government, and, you know, could could intervene um, in the 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 national uh, political process. Um, That wasn't the route that Calhoun took. Um, He didn't think that was the stronger argument, he really focused more on the idea of the the state convention. And he saw those state conventions as being the true originators of the constitutional system, we, we ratified through state conventions. Um, and, you know, through through the same type of argument, um, that that is where constitution making authority comes from, you know, lawmaking authority is held by the national government, but constitution making authority is reserved to the states. And so if the states believe that something has occurred that is unconstitutional, they can form a state convention, they can vote. They can nullify that legislation, and you know, they can uh, uh, you know, void it out um, if necessary. And you know, what's kind of interesting is the, the nullifiers, at least, you know, had on record the idea that they had already successfully done this once, um, and this was during yeah. the Seaman controversy. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, uh, you know, we had these uh, British ships coming into the Charleston ports and they had black sailors. Well, Charleston didn't want the black sailors interacting with their slaves. They were afraid they'd fill their heads with all kinds of crazy ideas of liberation and freedom and all kinds of stuff like that. So they just jailed the black sailors. And they'd hold them in jail until it was time to, you know, for their ships to head out. And then they'd release them and put them back on the ships. Well, I mean, this ended up heading to federal courts. Um, this headed up the, the food chain. And John Quincy Adams um, had his attorney general pen uh, uh, an essay on the constitutionality of this. And he came out very, very firmly saying, this is unconstitutional. This, this violates treaties that we have with Great Britain. You can't do this. And South Carolina said, yeah, out of hell with you. We're going to do it anyway. And they continued to jail them. So, I mean, to, to some extent, you know, Hain argued that that was the first successful nullification of a federal law. So this, this had already been done. Um, and this had already been done successfully. So they weren't entirely paving new ground. Uh, they were doing something that had already been, been done successfully. And, and uh, you know, therefore there was uh, there was there wasn't that much that was as radical to it as people were making it out to be
1: that's fascinating i i didn't know that actually that's that's really interesting so so it'd been established by precedent uh, So 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 the south carolinians the south carolina legislature didn't know what a firestorm they were going to unleash with their ordinance in 1832
0: apparently well, yeah, seen I, or... it, it, you know they they had become very insulated as well um, yeah. when it came to 1832. Um, two, two things that happened that I think gave them a false read of, of public reaction to what was going to happen. Uh, one, unionists in the states basically decided not to participate in the political process. They decided to sit it out. Um, they had decided that the various factions within the nullifiers were going to end up eating each other alive, and they, they didn't need to get involved, which turned out to have been a really bad strategy because they could have blocked a lot of what happened um, if they had bothered to show up. Um, so that, that didn't you know, work out all that well um, uh, overall, but uh, they also uh, t- tried to implement test oaths um, and the uh, the test oaths were basically you have to swear by the ordinance um, and uh, in order to hold state office and in order to vote. Um, so you you couldn't really publicly denounce <laughs> what the nullifiers were doing um, and speak out about it. And so everywhere you went, you of course found people who were speaking positively of, of of the nullifiers' efforts and, and what was taking place as they're trying to raise an army and it's comical it's all get out because they don't have enough guns they try to start a cannonball factory um they're trying to train and they realize that with all the money in the treasury in south carolina they wouldn't have enough to buy weapons for uh for the army so they were going to have to use guerrilla tactics against the federal armies if they ended up invading um, I, I mean, th- this this whole thing was just a debacle from um, <laughs> start to finish. Uh, but you know, nonetheless, they you know they kept proceeding forward. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, I didn't I didn't real I didn't
1: know all of that. That's that's really interesting. So I've, I've just I wanted to mention we've got a lot of good questions coming in. It seems like we've answered uh, or at least addressed quite a few of them. Uh, Ray Ray had asked us. Uh, uh, Calhoun, Calhoun's argument rests on the fact that each state held its own ratification convention, um, with making it a state process, not a national process. I think we've we've answered that, and uh, and Dan's, Daniel's question about um, the relationship between the federal government and the and the states. I think we've talked about um, a couple of questions uh, having to do with Madison and perhaps even others' views from the founding era on these questions. So. Uh, Here's an interesting question from, uh, gosh, who was this from? I'm so sorry. I'm trying to see who submitted this question. Was it Mary? Yeah, Mary Ann asked, does does Calhoun's argument uh, equate to the concerns by earlier anti-federalists and or Jefferson's Democratic Republicans? And I think she's wondering if there's, if, 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 how the development of the political parties also contributed Hmm. to perhaps the. Um, the, the view of South Carolina on nullification. So, the more meaning question, though, is: Is there any? Uh, do we do we see arguments, uh, justification, or perhaps bases for uh, Calhoun's arguments in some of the concerns of anti-federalists and/or Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans? And I would throw Madison in there as well because we hmm. mentioned Madison uh, and, and uh, as the author of the Virginia Resolutions.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I'll just you know respond to the the issue with the the anti-federalists. Um, I think that in you you see among the the anti-federalist writings, um, the concerns that are coming to fruition here in the late 1820s, 1830s. Um, but the the important point that I, I I think is that I want to try to draw out here is that the anti-federalists during the debate over the ratification of the Constitution are um, worried that when the constitution passes the states will lose this right of interposition they say that that's right if the constitution passes the states lose this right of interposition and yet we see calhoun many many years later uh, arguing on the floor of the senate uh, that no we the states never gave up that right Somehow it's, it's, it almost strikes me as a having your cake and eating it too sort of argument that, yeah, the Constitution passed, but still that doesn't uh, essentially change the, the nature of the arrangement between the, the states and the, and the federal government. So Calhoun, I don't think he ever says this, but it seems the outcome of his argument is that, well, you you anti-federalists, you're, you're, your fears are misplaced because the new Constitution doesn't fundamentally transform uh, the nature of the union doesn't fundamentally transform the the nature of the states, um, but I think the anti-federalists make a much better argument here, because and this came out of a question you asked earlier, Chris, from 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 one of uh, our participants, um, right? The uh, regarding the uh, the state legislatures and the various state ratifying conventions. Um, The Constitution is ratified, and this was done, you know, deliberately through uh, the text of of Article 7, not by the state legislatures, right? Because if you have the state legislatures, 9 of the 13 have to to ratify, if it's the state legislatures doing that work, then there's some credence for Calhoun's interpretation, his understanding of the the union, that the states created the union, that the states created the Constitution. Um, But it's not the state's uh legislatures that are responsible uh for the for the ratification of the constitution but it's the state ratifying conventions it's not the legislatures but the conventions that are that will be responsible for voting the constitution up or down but jason are you saying
1: then that this is uh different this compact is different therefore from the compact that formed the articles or or the same or similar
2: uh well i mean argument or Yeah, let's actually, I'm I'm glad you brought this up because we were talking about that compact earlier. And, um, and I want to come back to it if we can, because at the end of Calhoun's Fort Hill address, uh, the last paragraph, I think in the in our selections about in the middle, Calhoun says, the uh, the states, as has been shown, formed the compact, acting as sovereign and independent communities. The general government is but its creature. And though in reality, a government with all the rights and authority which belong to any other government within the orbit of its powers, it is nevertheless a government emanating from a compact between sovereigns and partaking in its nature and object of the character of a joint commission, appointed to superintend and administer the interests in which all are jointly concerned, but having beyond its proper sphere no more power than if it did not exist. For Calhoun at least, the move from the Articles to the Constitution does not fundamentally transform the nature of the Union, does not fundamentally transform the nature of the relationship among the states. Um, it was the states that created the Articles of Confederation and then it was the states that decided to uh, ratify the new US Constitution. Yeah, so the sovereign, where, where that sovereignty is located, um, who has it, who it belongs to, has not shifted at all, according to Calhoun. Yeah. It's always been with, uh, been with the states, or to, to use his language, it has always been, uh, it has always emanated from the people of the several states, forming distinct political communities and acting in their separate and sovereign capacity.
1: So for Calhoun, whether the state legislatures ratify or state ratifying conventions in each state is it doesn't a relevant matter. To him. Yeah, because because that does seem to be, that does seem to be one of Madison's counterarguments. Mm-hmm uh when he points out that the nullifiers are wrong and how they think about this madison says um now that that distinction is an important one this is not done by the state legislatures acting in in the in the capacity of representing sort of the political aspect of the state this is done by the by a state ratifying convention that is that is representing the people of the state and it's almost for the
2: sole purpose of yes ratifying the constitution
1: yeah yeah yeah. and it's almost as though james madison wants to say yes and i'm also partly thinking of the federalist paper where he where he lays out the federalist 39 where he talked he's addressing the question of whether or not this is a, this constitution is national or federal right yeah and i think madison says that this the ratification process is is one that is partly national and partly federal. It's, it's federal in the sense that it is done by ratifying bodies on a state by state basis. But it's national in the sense that every state ratifying convention represents the people of the state. And you can almost from that say, well, the aggregate of the people are being are deciding here or, 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 or voting through their state or through their representatives in that state ratifying convention. That, that argument doesn't seem to hold much water with Calhoun apparently right. No, not do, at all. I do think that's a questionable argument of Madison.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But but the other but see, if I remember Madison's argument again correctly, the other thing he suggests, especially in that letter to, to to Webster, you kind of have to pull this out of it, is that is that, okay, let's say you don't, let's say that that isn't a big deal to you, that, you know who does the ratifying, but what seems to matter, and Jason, you you said uh, for Calhoun, the nature of the union doesn't change. But James Madison seems to suggest that it does change yeah okay so even if it is the states that are ratifying in state ratifying conventions what they're doing is ratifying a constitution that does in fact change the nature of the union in other words it changes the relationship of the states as states to both the the, the new national government that's being established but through the union as a whole
2: yeah, and to each other as to each other as states. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I think that's that right. seems to
1: be Madison's stronger argument. Uh, yeah, in my opinion. But but boy, the way, but by the way, you know when uh, when Calhoun's making these speeches and he's invoking the Constitution and or the uh, Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions and hmm. saying the great authors of these of these documents uh, agree with me and support my position. You know, Madison is in retirement, and well, he's been in retirement a long time by this point, right? But uh, he gets a flurry of letters, and and, and is really, you know, d- you know, really feels obliged to respond to those letters and in a way defend his view, or, or at least defend the uh, defend himself against what he considered a charge that he would have su- that he supports nullification and potentially even secession. So right, right. One one thing he does mention is uh you know by the way he he kind of i think he throws jefferson under the bus a little bit here right so this kind of goes back to the we're still kind of on that question of are there parallels with the views of jefferson and others uh but i think he throws jefferson a little bit under the bus and says yeah regrettably jefferson is the author of the kentucky resolutions use the term nullification but madison says i don't think he meant by nullification what calhoun means Hmm. and then madison clarifies what he meant by nullif by I'm sorry, interposition in the Virginia resolutions, and, and he he makes the argument that it does not mean nullification by a state rep- a state legislative body over a federal act or law. He suggests, I think, and feel free to correct me on this, either of you please, my sense is that interposition means kind of the ability of a state to drag its feet in in, in resisting or um, you know, sort of, how do I put this? Um, you know, you can't come out and sort of veto a federal act.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's not a can. blocking of the act, yeah. right? It's not a blocking of the act and a declaration that it's unconstitutional and we the state have made that judgment that it's unconstitutional, then we the state are not going to enforce it because it's unconstitutional. And you, the national government have violated this compact so that absolves of, uh, absolves us of obedience to it. Um, they don't, Jefferson, Madison, they don't go that far in fighting against uh, the alien and sedition acts of, of the Adams administration. Um, Calhoun does go that far as to justify not only are, are the states um, right, uh, constitutionally right, in refusing to enforce these measures with force, right? To right, you, you try to make these measures effective, you'll meet with armed resistance. Um, but Calhoun also says this paves the way for, uh, a state to, to leave the union if necessary as a last resort.
1: Yeah. My, my sense, I'm sorry for talking so much here, but my sense is that uh, trying to get into Madison's head a little bit here in the uh, Virginia resolutions regarding the alien sedition acts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it Madison. Uh, yeah. Madison says we believe that act to be unconstitutional; those acts to be unconstitutional. Uh, it doesn't say we thereby nullify or veto them, but it's almost as though he's saying, they've, they've uh, passed these acts, let them try to enforce them. Because yeah. I believe at that time, you, you needed a lot of cooperation from the states to actually enforce federal acts. I mean, this is a, obviously in a time when we didn't have federal agents everywhere, you know, doing everything. It actually did, um, to enforce a federal act, did require a great deal of cooperation on the part of states, uh, state, state executives, and even state legislative bodies mm-hmm. um, and state courts, especially.
2: Yeah, but even so, for Madison, right? He's not declaring the Alien and Sedition Acts um, unconstitutional and therefore void, right? I don't think he takes that that next step, which Calhoun yeah. is more than happy to to embrace, and therefore void, and therefore, and we have we have no obligation constitutionally to to obey. Again, that's sort of the Articles of Confederation, right? Okay, Congress can pass a tax measure, or Congress can pass a bill trying to raise and support an army, but then they're totally dependent upon the states to follow up, to basically grant their permission and collect the taxes or raise and equip the, the army. Uh, again, I think Calhoun is in, in some ways still living under that, those Articles of Confederation, to where the states have that sort of power. Under the Articles, it was a very real power. Hmm. Um. And uh, yeah, yeah. I'm... So yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, it was also fortunate for Calhoun that the the more radical version of the Kentucky resolutions was found among Jefferson's papers ah. right about the exact time uh, that he was doing the Ford Hill address and starting to come out positively in favor of nullification. Um, up until that point, it wasn't really clear what of the Kentucky resolutions Jefferson had authored, um, but they found among his papers the the more radicalized version of it. Yeah. And Calhoun was Calhoun was overjoyed about this. Um, he said, <laughs> yeah, right. this, is, yeah. this, is, this is this is exactly what I needed to prove my case, because, um, I mean, in fairness, you you, you are right. Uh, Madison, to me, has always been a lot more ambiguous um, in the Virginia resolutions. I mean, a, about what he means by interposition. Uh, it, but Madison, I'm, I'm not sure I entirely agree with him about Jefferson and the Kentucky resolutions. Yeah, yeah. Um, Je- Jeff Jefferson, I think actually seems a lot more straightforward than, than Madison's willing to admit. Um, and Calhoun, and it really latches onto this as, as, as proof that here's one of our founding fathers who, who felt the same way about nullification.
1: That's a great point, Eric, because I think Calhoun does cite Jefferson's draft, right? Yeah. Various speeches and documents. Jefferson's draft of the Kentucky Resolutions, which, mm. you're right, is much more radical. But that, but Madison does. Madison argues Jefferson Jefferson used the term nullification in his draft, but he didn't really mean it. And I'm kind of with you. I'm not sure I buy that either. But. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think that's why it's important for Calhoun to say, right, it doesn't matter what we call this thing, interposition, nullification, veto, secession, right? It all goes back to the same idea, state sovereignty, right? So he's able to embrace both Madison's interposition and Jefferson's nullification uh, and rebrand them with, with his own. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, very good. Well, well, if,
1: as if as if Calhoun's not controversial enough, we've got several questions about Jackson. <laughs> Jackson's, a, you got just part of what makes this such an interesting crisis, as we're calling it, is you've got these great personalities all coming together, um, in, in articulating this different views, whether it's Webster or Calhoun or then Jackson, right? So um, Jackson's response, right response or wrong response, or or a combination of of so both
2: thoughts,
1: right response, right response, <laughs> right response. What is the response, right? Of course, he, he issues mm-hmm. this proclamation.
0: I, I mean, the, the hard part is that Jackson postured a lot, um, with his response to nullification. Uh-huh. I mean, he <laughs> he. He made it look like he was going to take the federal troops and march on Charleston. The fact was, Jackson was very reluctant to take military action against the nullifiers. Um, He was very self-aware of the criticisms that he was a military dictator. Um, Mm -hmm. He knew that if he, you know, essentially was responsible for taking the first shots um, this might inspire other southern states to get involved, um, and because south South Carolina had thought other southern states were going to get on board with nullification, and they didn't. um you know and and you can kind of imagine where South Carolina is, you know, hey, guys, yeah, we've got this great idea. We're going to nullify this legislation. <laughs> Guys,
2: yeah, <laughs> they'd have to wait 30 um, years for
0: a response. Yeah, well, okay, we'll, we'll go it alone. Um, but uh, uh you know, J- Jackson sort of knew that if, if he could get South Carolina to fire the first shot, he, he'd be fully justified. Um, no, nobody would question um, what he was doing, but if he came in with guns blazing. Um, that was not going to look good for him. It was not going to look good for the administration and was not going to set a real good precedent um, for the future. And so he really pushed very hard for a compromise tariff. And and that compromise tariff is what really resolved. The outcome is the nullifiers you know basically voted to put nullification on hold for a certain period of time. Um, give, give Congress time to work out a compromise tariff. And, uh, once that was passed, then they rescinded nullification and, um, uh, it, and then the crisis was abated at that point. Um, but you know, I, 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 think Jackson took the only steps he really could, um, in trying to appear, uh, extremely national and, uh, you know, taking the stand that, you know, we're, we're not going to allow states to disobey the laws. Um, But at the same time, practically behind the scenes, he couldn't be nearly as aggressive as he sounded in public. And I think he knew he had to be more reserved and more guarded in how he actually took action. Can I just say that uh, maybe we can come back to this at some
1: point if you'd like, but the language in that proclamation and his argument about the nature of the union. I'm often shocked by how much that sounds like uh, uh, John Marshall's uh, explanation of the nature of the union in uh, maybe maybe it was in the McCulloch v. Maryland case, which which Jackson would take great offense at if if he were around to hear me say that, I'm sure, yeah. and that I, he'd probably shoot me. But, um, but, but a couple of uh, questions that arise from those really interesting thoughts, Eric. Did Jackson's strong language in the proclamation help to drive that wedge between South Carolina and the other states, Southern states that they were expecting to follow?
0: Did did that also? Yes. Um, I mean, there was there was no doubt that the the strong stance he took um, really helped to dissuade other states from from getting involved and and trying uh, the same measures that South Carolina was was attempting. Uh, So, I mean, that. That was, that was a smart move on his part um, to make sure that, that they didn't get bolstered uh, by Georgia or uh, North Carolina or uh, any of the other, you know, surrounding Southern states that might be inclined to help. Um, he, 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 didn't, he didn't want South Carolina to be turned into a martyr. Um, that's, that's what he was really afraid of. Um, and, and what kind of an effect that would have on future federal state relations. Um, But he also was was not going to tolerate um, a state disobeying the federal government Uh, that that was that was off the table. Yeah. Yeah, because he does he does use pretty
1: strong language, but it's not you're right. It's not explicit, but he he does drop some hints, especially at the end of the of the proclamation that, you know, basically appealing to the people of, of South Carolina to come to their senses before more drastic actions have to be taken. It uh, doesn't exactly, I don't know if he s- says explicitly what those are, but he, he does suggest that, that, uh, that uh, in effect, he's telling them don't fire the first shot, right? But you never know, with Jackson, whether he's daring them to or not sometimes. Uh, um, but by the way, this is, an, this, this, the other interesting question was actually from Billy. Uh, Eric, some things you were just saying reminded me of Billy's question from earlier. Was Jackson more committed to saving democracy or preserving the Democratic Party when it came to nullification? And his follow-up question is: Did Jackson approach this decision with a, with a with a pro-Southern bias? So, was Jackson committed to democracy as he claimed, or was was were there party um, implications or motives in in Jackson's proclamation?
2: Well, if I I'll, I could just jump in here for a minute, I, I, I think that South Carolina and many others in the South sort of uh, expected a lot differently from Jackson, given the fact that, right, he's a southerner uh, from Tennessee. Um, many of them think, hey, you know, this guy's gonna be on our side. We know what to expect from him. Uh, plus he's right, a, the, the leader of our party. Uh, Jackson comes out and in his proclamation completely confounds them all. And I think, Eric, you're, you're exactly right about um, the, the wonderful thing about Jackson's responses, the, the prudence he shows in sort of walking this, this fine line that he's forced to forced to discover, um, not marching on South Carolina, advancing a compromise tariff measure in order to um, uh, you know have the, the, to avert the crisis. Um, one thing I've always admired though about his um, his proclamation regarding nullification. Um, is that Jackson takes the time um, to respond to Calhoun's arguments about the nature of the union. He doesn't have to do that, right? As president, as a party man, it, that that is something that um, he could choose to address or not. And Jackson chooses to address it. Head on. Um, so for example, just to to read a bit from about the middle part of his address, he says, This right to secede is deduced from the nature of the Constitution, right? So he's talking here about Calhoun, which they say, the nullifiers, is a compact between sovereign states who have preserved their whole sovereignty and therefore are subject to no superior. That because they made the contract or because they made the compact, they can break it when, in their opinion, it has been departed from by the other states. So Jackson has just summarized the Calhoun argument on this point. And he summarized it correctly, I think. Then he says, fallacious as this course of reasoning is, it enlists state pride and finds advocates in the honest prejudices of those who have not studied the nature of our government sufficiently to see the radical error on which it rests. And then he goes on to provide a a very thorough philosophical and political response uh, to the nullifiers. Not in regards to the the tariff or nullification, but getting back to the larger issue of the nature of the union itself, and why Calhoun's wrong about his understanding of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and again, I'm struck by that that aspect of Jackson's argument, Jason, that you bring up because, it, again, remind it sounds very much in step with a lot of the arguments of um, of sort of pro-union men, as they were called, they call themselves, right, to distinguish themselves from the. From the Nullifiers and secessionists later.
2: Yeah, and Jackson is no advocate of a strong national government either. Right. Again, he's sort of he's sort of um, the nullifiers would have expected him to join their cause. Yeah. And he does the exact opposite. But
1: he explicitly rejects that that notion of the origins of the Constitution or the compact. That's right. That you were saying, Calhoun espoused earlier. Right. Yeah. So he 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 lays out a very. And by the way, again, it just reminds me of. again we sorry for not recommending this as background reading but if you go back and look at the webster hayne debates there's a lot of similarity between the argument that jackson makes here hmm. with with the way webster talks about the origins and of, of, or the nature of the union as it emerges from the from the ratification of the constitution now yeah again i'm not sure how much of that is is really jackson or if this is as i think eric don't let me words in your mouth that there's some political posturing going on here Um, but uh, but this this is is Eric has suggested earlier as uh, well but this certainly would have been what would have been expected I think from Jackson as president in in some regards right at least expected perhaps not from (laughs) from uh, a lot of people in the south but from um, from from other uh, very well-known uh, political figures from the North, including Daniel Webster
0: and others. So, yeah, and and we can't forget there there is a small part of this that's personal as well. I mean, Jackson hated Calhoun. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so the fact that Calhoun was uh, you know a leading figure um, in this whole nullification you know movement. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, must've just driven Jackson crazy. Um, uh, yeah, the, he, he, yeah, stand him. there's some history there, right? So yeah, there's, <laughs> there's, 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 quite a bit of
1: history. <laughs> yeah. Was it Calhoun that insulted Jackson's wife?
0: It was technically Calhoun's wife that insulted Jackson. Oh, right. okay. But, right, it, but, but Calhoun got blamed for it. <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and that statement, by the way, is this is, is there is it apocryphal or is, it, is there evidence for this that Jackson claimed after he signed the proclamation that if he has to march if he has to march down to, to South Carolina, the first person he'll hang is John C. Calhoun. Do we know that? Yeah, as is? far as
0: I know, I I think
1: he did say that. He did say that, yeah. Okay. All right, good. That's very interesting. <laughs> um and Eric, you mentioned earlier the the, the the compromise tariff, right? So let's, we've just got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, how was how this all resolved? Uh, what, what was the nature of the compromise tariff? Did South Carolina back down? Did they issue anything formally acknowledging that they were backing down? How did this all play out?
0: Well, uh, essentially, Jackson makes it known he wants a reduction in tariff rates and, you know, some sort of compromise tariff to resolve the conflict. Uh, Congress sets to work on it. Um, At first, it goes horribly. Um, All of the communication coming back to South Carolina is that there's no chance that a tariff is uh, for tariff reduction. Um, It's just not going to happen. Um, Then there's some progress that, that ends up getting made, and we start approaching the date where nullification is to take effect and the nullifiers get together and decide to extend the date. Um, and basically, okay, we're going to postpone this. Um, and I I don't remember how long it was six months, a year or something like that, but they, they were going to, they were going to postpone it for a period of time. Um, and during that interim, um, Congress was able to finally work out, um, a compromise where they, They brought down tariff rates on a number of goods that would placate the South um, and uh, were able to get it passed uh, and through. And uh, once that happened, the nullifiers repudiated nullification at that point, and uh, the crisis was averted. And that's kind of the end of it for 30 years or so.
1: But I'm I'm sure there are other, we know there are other things going on in the meantime, but... uh... Hey, um, We only have a minute or two left, but I actually wanted to mention a great question from Cody that was relevant to what we were talking about earlier in terms of what Jackson's real motives were uh, in issuing this proclamation. Cody submitted this question. Did Jackson provide an explanation for his inconsistency in enforcing federal law? And he mentions, of course, in the nullification crisis, he threatens military force uh, to South Carolina when they threaten to ignore federal law. But he allowed the state of Georgia to ignore the Supreme Court's orders in Cherokee v. Georgia. And there are a number of other instances where Jackson seemed to turn a blind eye to enforcing federal orders and federal laws. Uh, and I just, I mentioned this because it, you know, it, 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 it suggests something about Jackson.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think it has something to do with, well, the, the most obvious, right? Does it align with his interest or not? But also, where is it emanating from right so if you talk about the cherokee case or uh right the the bank case if those are orders coming out of the supreme court i think jackson is much less likely to to go along and say they must be enforced under the constitution and it's my duty as president to see that it's done um than if those uh then if uh those measures are coming out of the congress that's a very good point because we do that's <laughs> great that's a great point because we know
1: jackson has has uh no love for the Supreme court as it was composed in his uh in his time so yeah at this time it's great because it's still still essentially the federalist stronghold if I remember correctly right yeah Supreme Court the place where all these relics from the Federalists uh, have have, uh, have taken up residence and are still causing all kinds of trouble but yeah <laughs> from his <laughs> right. perspective so now this is fantastic I, and um I want to thank you both we've come to the end of our time I want to thank you both for uh, some really, really insightful explanations of where all of these uh, views are coming from on, a, on a, and, and a good explanation of the nature of the crisis from beginning to end. And uh, I've enjoyed it very much and learned a lot as always. So thank you both very much um, for your time and your thoughts this morning. Me too, thank you both. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And um, interestingly enough, uh, our next webinar, next saturday webinar is on november 18th and it's on the crisis of the assassination of abraham lincoln and so between the, the the nullification crisis and the civil war and the assassination of lincoln a lot of other things developed i suspect that perhaps we'll be able to discuss some of those developments and we'll actually get some uh some some interesting scholars for our next saturday webinar uh we'll be joined by eric sands of barry college and jason stevens of ashland university so, I don't know if you guys knew it, but you're joining you're joining us again uh, in November. Uh, and
2: I'm looking forward to it. Crisis.
1: That'll so, be fun. Yeah, it'll be great. So perhaps we can actually continue some of this and and see how some of these emerging ideas, uh, with regard to secession, the of course, the Civil War, and ultimately, uh, you know, talk about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So, again, that webinar will be November 18th, assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Eric Sands and Jason Stevens will be joining us again for another great conversation. Uh, So thanks again to both of you. Thanks for the great questions today. Uh, Again, look for the email with the link for your certificate of participation. Uh, Feel free to share the link to the uh, archived audio and video with friends and colleagues, um, if you think of it. And and as always, um, Look forward to seeing you all again at our next webinar. So until then, wish you all the very best. Thanks again.
0: Thank you for listening to another tah.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at tah.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.